We now go to a falling world where catastrophic climate change has begun to rear its horrible head. Human beings have begun to move permanently to the sky. These new enormous floating cityscapes are the escape hatch for a humanity in a dying world. We now go to the flying sky city of Cluj, which is to fall last as the increasing ecological crisis inevitably swallows the cities one by one. Oh, hey, this new Sky City's not so bad. I think it might last forever. I love the exercise facilities. The food's great so far. Have you checked out the water slide? I haven't checked out the water slides. The really steep one? You'll know the one. It's good. You know, I always knew that we'd figure out some way to survive and adapt when we weren't changing our fuel emissions. All those alarmists who were like, we have to save the planet. It's like, no, duh. We can live above the planet in Sky Cities, and it'll last forever, probably, quite likely. The planet's going to be fine. It's us we got to worry about. It's a great point. It's a great point. Yeah, and it's this big kludge. It's totally self-sufficient. Yep, you got the solar panels. Soon the nuclear reactor is going to be up and running, and then nothing can stop us. And it's still pretty affordable to take a shuttle to and from these enormous flying sky cities. Yeah, and once all of humanity's moved off of world, there'll just be less reason to go down there at all. I mean, the ones who can afford to move off, of course, but uh, the rest won't make it, and that's just how the world is. Yeah, I feel good about this. Do you feel good about this? Yeah, pretty good. There's sort of a techno-optimism around here, you know? Like, I feel like we're really gonna make it. Yeah. At that moment, Sean and Aaron, two time-traveling interdimensional representatives of the organization The Cult of Universal Human Emancipation, from a universe within the multiverse that is already a utopia. It's actually already perfect. And they, you know, had a lot of free time. You know, people start social clubs. They call them cults. Obviously, there's no, like, bad cults anymore. It's a utopia. And the cult of universal human emancipation actually goes from universe to universe, finding universes that are in the process of falling towards dystopia, and then giving them the tools they need to survive, thrive, make it, turn around, and start moving towards ever more perfect society. So, and at that exact moment, Sean and Aaron from the cult of universal human emancipation arrive in a flash. Oh, yeah, it's uh, disorienting. I was traveling by portal. Oh, I've got some bad portal leg. (sighs) Uh, Yeah, it'll pass. Just shake it off, shake it off. Hi, guys. So we are from another universe. Uh, I'm sure you guessed with the portal. Cult of Universal Human Emancipation. You're actually heading towards a horrifying dystopian future. We could hear what you were saying before we came in through the portal, kind of time is weird, and you're wrong. You're not headed in a good direction. This isn't going to end up okay for you, and this city won't last forever. Mm. And before you have any other comment here, I've just got this device. You can see it's strapped onto me. It weighs about 40 pounds. Yeah, we could make it lighter, but we do like to keep our bodies strong as well in a utopia. So the weight is there on purpose. I had a design just for me and my needs. So I'm going to turn on the viewer screen here, and the viewer screen is going to sort of show us a little bit about what you can expect if you continue your current course. Let's just turn that on here. Oh, look at that. The surface of the earth. Have you ever seen something so close to a literal depiction of hell? Yeah, that is a blazing inferno. That's wild. Here, let's go to your descendants. Oh, even though your city was the best sky city of all that lasted the longest, you were still eventually eaten by the churning storm. 
Yeah, that footage of your entire city crashing to the earth in a ball of flame is pretty horrifying. Sorry if that's emotional for you, but it won't happen for hundreds of years. Oh, yikes. It actually looks like rolling starvation hits the kluge within your lifetime. Yeah, if, so if you're not concerned about your descendants, but only yourselves, it, it will affect you as well. But your kids especially. I mean, look at that one. Oh, I don't know about that. I feel sort of unethical having accidentally showed you that footage. You just happened to die when we looked at it. But anyways, no matter. Don't worry about that. That's why we're here. We have a tape, a very special tape. It's an interview with Lyda Gold from Current Affairs on this podcast, Seriously Wrong. It's a 2019 thing. Some 2019 era references, if you don't get them, whatever. But this tape is going to hook a fish hook into your universe and then reel you in, just reel you in towards perfect utopia forever. I, I do like that metaphor, but it's imperfect because it implies you won't have agency in this process, but you will. You're just going to likely be convinced by this tape because so many people are. Yeah, I mean, you're totally free here, but just frankly, uh, we've looked at your timeline quite a bit, and it's either learn here from the tape or learn in the killing fields of the rolling starvation. And if I were you, I'd pick the tape. Up to you. I'll just pop this in into here. Thank you guys for being so patient with us. It's Monday. I haven't had my coffee yet. And I'm usually just... people have a lot of questions, but you've let us go on and on, and you're signaling, yes, you'll let us play the tape. Pointing at the tape player, giving a thumbs up. Sean will stand still for the entire duration of the tape, so the screen doesn't move. The screen only shows a waveform because it's an audio tape, but Sean is very good at standing still if you are concerned about the screen shaking because it's attached to him. We usually get questions like that, but you are just a great receptive universe. I love this. What's that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We can press play. It's a great first question. We'll do it. Warning. Fiction can tell you a lot of nonfiction things. And a story about a world without goulash can actually tell you a lot about goulash. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. I'm Sean. I'm Aaron. And we are Seriously Wrong hosts. And this is a really special episode with Light of Gold. And before we get into that stuff, just want to do a little bit of business and say if you can donate to us on Patreon, it makes all the difference in the world. It's the reason we're able to keep the show going and, and make it awesome and do fun stuff. And thank you to everyone who's already doing that. Yeah, it means the world to us and it lets us keep doing the show. We just did two great episodes in a row about the French Revolution that I'm super excited about. So if you want to check those out, please head over to the Patreon. But not before listening to this fantastic interview with Lyda Gold, who is a delight. Delighta Gold, as I call her. <laughs> Though not to her face, because that would be that, weird. <laughs> why did she call her that when she was around? <laughs> be a strange thing to do slightly more strange than saying it when she's not around on something she'll listen to <laughs> these are the big questions of podcasting not a lot of podcasts break that fourth wall that's true of... that like do we call her delida in the intro or not or do we just privately think oh her name is lida she's a delight well we'll let those stay separate we took a bold choice this episode uh, <laughs> we committed to the delida path and now on with the show. Oh, one other thing. Some other ways you can help us out. Please, please head to iTunes, leave reviews for us. Mm -hmm. Stitcher, uh, any place where you can review podcasts. The more people who leave positive reviews and put good ratings means the more people are going to hear the contents of these episodes. Share the podcast around. Talk to your friends about it. Tell them it's weird, but good. Or the most underrated podcast of the century. Whatever you want. Something like that. And anyway, now on with the show for real. Um. 
and welcome back to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. We've got a very special guest today, the supremely talented Lida Gold, amusements editor of Current Affairs Magazine, contributor to the Current Affairs Podcast, and the publisher of a new book called The Big Book of Amusements, published by Lida Gold and Nathan J. Robinson of Current Affairs, which is a collection of funny puzzles, weird games, and great satire. It's great to have you on the show, Lida. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about the book, The Big Book of Amusements. What's the pitch? So it is a collection of just about all the amusements that we have ever done. There's quizzes, there's fake board games, some which are actually playable. There's funny lists, there's silly mazes, there's all kinds of things, and they're all related to the mission of the magazine, and so they're all socialist and they're all fun. Some of them are really surreal. They are meant to laugh, to entertain, to educate. And it's not just stuff that's from the magazine. It's also some new things that we made up special just for the book. So if you don't have the book, you don't have these extremely special things that I made up out of my brain. Gotta get it. Sean has a copy because something he did is in there and he was just showing me. looks pretty great. Yeah, it's like a really fun book to flip through. And, you know, I've said this before about other things, but it makes a great gift. You can put it out on someone's coffee table. So much funny stuff in there, you know? Yeah, and I'm a proud contributor. I did a crossword, which was about the history of CIA and FBI crime. There's some interesting facts in there. Like, for example, that in the 1970s, the CIA director commissioned a report on illegal CIA activity, which ended up being 693 pages long. It's a lot of crimes. (laughs) It's it's a lot lot of crimes for a police body. (laughs) I would have trouble making up 693 pages worth of crimes if I wanted to write a fictional report of crimes. Like, that's a lot of pages of crimes. That's... (laughs) Yeah, you've got to have quite an imagination for crimes to, to drop a 700-page tome like that. Yeah, that uh, crosser is one of my favorite things in there. So yeah, uh, um, some of it's done by me, maybe 60% of it was written by me. And then we've got lots of fun artists and lots of other people who contributed. There is a, an illustration in there. It's like kind of a, an Easter egg. Brianna drew it, Brianna Renix, and it's her and Nathan and Oren. And Nathan is explaining stuff to Brianna and Oren, and they look exhausted. So, <laughs> But you can't find that illustration if you don't have it. So get it and find that hilarious illustration by our own Brianna Renix. And obviously, we've covered this before on the show, Current Affairs. It's the best magazine in the world. Everyone should read it. <laughs> Doing some of the best contemporary socialist writing. It's also got a good sense of humor, which is rare to find in good left-wing politics. So can't endorse that enough. But something that... I'd really like to talk about today. There's sort of a theme through some of the writing that you've done for Current Affairs on the issue of science fiction and science fiction's role in relation to socialism, optimism, dystopia, utopia, and the impending threat of douchebags winning the space race, so to speak, the intellectual space race for the cognitive landscape of science fiction. How do you think we can make sure that the socialist good hearts, good people win the space race? You mean in sci-fi itself? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, because there's also the question of how do we do it IRL, which is very important. Got to keep the Elon Musks out of the air. Yeah, get so he doesn't get to Mars first. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, he'll just die on Mars, and that'll be really funny. 
I just hope he films. It. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a sick person. So one of the one of the really tricky things about sci-fi and the history of sci-fi is that there have always been reactionary tendencies, and I'm not sure that the reactionary tendencies are are that much further forward now. There's still a reactionary core of mostly old white men who are writing sci-fi and are sort of entrenched. But one of the things I find more disturbing about the sci-fi now, there's a lot that's really, really good. And there's a lot that's really original and liberatory. But there's much of the stuff that's more popular, that's people know about, that's, you know, become come into pop culture and had adaptations done. A lot of that stuff is really neoliberal. And it has these really baked in neoliberal assumptions and Neoliberalism is funny because it's an idea about not having ideas. It's about idea of like history being set, and you know, there's there's a horizon to your imagination. Everything's limited, which makes for really really weird science fiction, which is all about imagination and the exploration of all things that are possible. So that's a tendency I think is not talked about very much. It's all, when people talk about sci-fi, they tend to, to to put into the two camps of like the old white reactionaries and the cool new stuff. But there's tons of weird shit also happening that I think we need to talk about. Yeah, the neoliberal stuff. I think of it a lot in terms of capitalist realism and like Mark mm-hmm. Fisher stuff and just what would the world look like if we do get all this great new technology, but we're still existing with these underlying assumptions of everything becoming marketized, more and more things becoming marketized, that money and capital and private ownership of capital is inevitable. And no no matter how much productive capacity we have or what cool technologies we have, those social relationships are going to stay kind of the same. Like the technology will change them, but there's, there's Mm -hmm. there's something that can't change, or at least that's the sense you get from reading a future where it hasn't changed. You see this a lot in dystopias, and I understand like the fear that dystopias are made out of, but they do posit a world in which we have not arisen beyond our problems because because there's some sense, of course, that we can't, we fundamentally can't. And then my colleague Brianna Rennicks wrote this really great piece for us about, she called it uh, The Regrettable Decline of Space Utopias, I think is the title. And it's about the ubiquity of dystopias now and why dystopias are so popular and what it is that people get out of them. And one of the things that she says is people get this funny complacency, this funny, like, there's nothing we can really do. And, you know, it's not actually that horrible because you're watching it from the comfort of your home. And, you know, you can turn it off and go to sleep and go about the rest of your day. And it just sort of like blankets you in the sense of like, well, you know, this is life right now isn't even so bad. Everything is sort of what it is. You know, nothing is ever going to really improve. We just have to sort of evade dystopia best we can, but we probably can't. So we're stuck. There was a quote from that article that I really liked where she said that there was a fashionable faux cynicism. And she called it faux cynicism because people are professing to be pessimists, but there's a suspicion that they don't actually truly believe that humanity is doomed. So it's like this release valve for like pessimistic energy to be like, oh, everything is hopeless, which is why I don't have to do anything, but I'm going to secretly live according to the assumption that I'm ultimately going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about it on the show in terms of like having sunglasses on your ideology, very cool and detached, trendy cynicism that avoids an engagement with the legitimate potentialities, the thousands of potential futures for the world and our responsibility to bring them forth. I was wondering, do you feel like science fiction has unique tools to engage these potential futures and encourage sort of a responsibility towards that rather than to... So there's this great Ursula Le Guin quote that I love, and Ursula Le Guin is like my favorite person of all time, favorite writer of all time, certainly. But she has this wonderful quote, which is that science fiction is not predictive, it is descriptive. 
so that it's it's always about even when it's about the future and you can also apply this to fantasy too when it's about like a, a you know an imagined past it's always about the present and you're always writing about the present and i think that's really true in a lot of ways that it's you're imagining the way the future could be but you're also grappling with the things that exist right now and coming to terms with the things that exist right now and how they could go forward into a future but how also they are dystopian or utopian right now. And so the important context on Brianna's piece is that she works for a legal aid organization trying to get separated moms and kids, moms and kids who are in a baby jail in Texas, refugee people, trying to get them free. So she deals with like horrible dystopian stuff every day. So the idea that dystopia is a thing that's like safe and far away and is like an imaginary future or or something that we're hurtling towards, we can't stop it, whatever, like, no, it's like here right now, like we are living and participating in a dystopia. And to be able to like consume that as entertainment and shut off your brain is really kind of gross in, 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 a, in a lot of ways. And to say like there's no other imaginable future, there's no other, there's no other way out here is a way of not describing the current reality either. I take enormous pleasure in awarding the 2014 Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters to Ursula K. Le Guin. I think hard times are coming when we will be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now and can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being and even imagine some real grounds for hope. We will need writers who can remember freedom poets, visionaries, the realists of a larger reality. I think we need writers who know the difference between production of a market commodity and the practice of an art. Oops, you know, they're, they're not just commodities. The profit motive is often in conflict with the aims of art. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. So did the divine right of kings. <laughs> Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. Resistance and change often begin in art, and very often in our art, the art of words. Now time for a Seriously Wrong Style Papa and Boy sketch. Papa, Papa. Yes, boy. Papa, might we look back on this era as a regrettable period where humans were childishly, tragically wrong about so much, especially capitalism and the necessity of violence? Boy, have you been reading that light of gold on current affairs again? No, we absolutely won't look back on this as a regrettable period where humans were childishly and tragically wrong about so much. We're at the best ideas possible, we're at the end of history, and unlike all previously existing societies before this one, the logic of this one is actually permanent and inescapable forever. Oh, thanks, Dad. (laughs) You're welcome. Just internalize that and don't read any more of that current affairs. Thank you for the sage advice, Papa, and you've made me a more mature and realistic adult, ready to fully integrate. Thank you. You're welcome. You're even sounding more adult, and I like that. Papa and boy. 
that uh do you think of something like black mirror as being more on the liberatory side or is it how do you grapple with the black mirror it's a really popular show probably like the most popular contemporary sci-fi but it's very very dystopian and sort of cynical pessimistic oh man i have such strong feelings about black mirror and they're like all over the place feelings on on the one hand i i really like especially when it first started i was like thank god somebody is talking about how like tech is really fucked up because when it started i'm trying to remember how old the show is i think it's like maybe 2014 but like we were still like in a space where people were like facebook is good like twitter's liberatory you know like (laughs) like not even really acknowledging like this shit is creepy and steals your data and these people do not have your best interests at heart So I was really excited that they're actually talking about it, but I think Black Mirror tends to take all of the wrong looks. It is very dark, it's very cynical. With a few exceptions, it's super repetitive because it almost always, with a few exceptions, ends with technology wins and people lose. And it becomes boring because it's always the conclusion. Whoever your, your character is striving to do something, maybe they're a good person, maybe they're a bad person, it doesn't matter, the technology wins in the end. So there's no liberatory possibility there because we're all just stuck. And Charlie, I think his name's Charlie Brooker, the guy who created Black Mirror, he says, said this thing once that I thought was like super interesting. He said that he isn't anti-technology and that's the, what you're getting from the show, you're not understanding him right. And I think that's, that's, just like a, that's it, that's right there. He's not actually criticizing the stuff, he likes it. It's sort of like a libidinal, like, oh, we're so stuck. You know, it's like a sexy bondage thing almost. Like, we're, oh no, technology's got us in its grip. We're dead. <laughs> so, yeah, Charlie Brooker's <laughs> actually flirting with the, the techno overlord elite. You know, he's sort of like, ooh, I'm bashful. You got me. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, not, not to kink shame. I mean, like, to each their own. But, but you know, it's, it's a little bit weird in. A science fiction story like that that is trying to operate as a critique and is again has been the only critique out there but it's not really a critique because it's like in the end submissive and fine with it yeah that's the thing about portraying a dystopian vision is that it can inspire complacency when it's portrayed as inevitable or portrayed as insurmountable mm-hmm. but just showing an opposition to it or a tension there that people can identify with something that's mm-hmm. that's good and pushing back against like there are dystopias that can be useful ways of like you know describing things we're f- afraid of two of my favorite utopia novels are actually they have a dystopia next to them and so there's Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed which have you guys read that one? I have, yeah. Yeah. I've been waiting to for my whole life. It's so good <laughs> because that one has the anarchists on the moon, on the, the good utopian society on the moon, and then the decadent capitalist planet. And then you see these societies in parallel. So, one, it, it keeps the utopia interesting, but you also see like the two divergent ways. Another novel that's kind of similar is Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time. It's set in, on an Earth future, but it has distinct branching societies where it could go in this lovely utopian community direction or it could go into this horrible capitalist misogynist trapped dystopia where everything is terrible and so i think showing those two next to each other helps i actually pulled a quote from the dispossessed or i was looking through the highlights on my kindle from when i had read it and i wanted to read it because i feel like it's such a good example of what makes fiction sci-fi fiction or speculative fiction so powerful and it has to do with what you were just talking about So this is when the main character, Shevik, has just arrived on the main planet, on the capitalist society, and he's kind of like being shown around. 
and it says, he'd been taught as a child that Oras was a festering mess of inequity, inequality, and waste. But all the people he met, all the people he saw in the smallest country village were well-dressed, well-fed, and contrary to his expectations, industrious. They did not stand around sullenly waiting to be ordered to do things. Just like the Anaresti, they were simply busy getting things done. It puzzled him. He had assumed that if you removed human beings' natural incentive to work, his initiative is spontaneous creative energy and replaced it with external motivation and coercion, he would become lazy and care careless worker, but no careless workers kept these lovely farmlands or made the superb cars and comfortable trains. The lure and compulsion of profit was evidently a much more effective replacement for natural initiative than he'd been led to believe. And the reason I love it so much is because it shows someone who has a completely different mindset from our own like he's born and raised in this anarchist society where they talk about natural motivation and how it's better than profit motive and then when he's confronted with this capitalist society he's like wait a minute how come they're still doing things how come they're working hard and and i mean the narrative gets complicated later on like the planet isn't some capitalist utopia it has a lot of problems but it's like that moment of his interior world experiencing this other society is like like you can't get something that powerful just with straight prose explaining ideas you have to be in someone's head and like their assumptions interacting with difference yeah that's like that's the thing that's super super powerful about science fiction and and politics to me is how you can build these inversions where then when you let the logic play out you can speak to these bigger patterns without just very sort of like descriptively being like i think this is what people would think or something stupid like that but like being able to take these different premises and then play out the complexity of reality through them it's just like it's such mind candy i feel like it's (laughs) it expands your imagination in such a palpable sort of way Margaret Atwood, she has a great book of essays about science fiction, but there's one in particular where she talks about utopias versus dystopia. And she makes this really important point, which is that every every dystopia is a utopia for somebody, and possibly vice versa. So in like in that passage for the dispossessed, there are people who are on top of any dystopia who are having a fantastic time, and for who everything is great and shiny and lovely. And one of the things that you can really do in dystopian, especially in any science fiction, but especially in dystopian or utopian literature, is you can really show what it is like to be subsumed in a society like that and to think that things are good or things think that, you know, or to realize that things are bad or to come from a perspective of thinking things are good and wake up to the realization that things are actually quite bad. It's funny because even though we live in a dystopia, it's hard to write that as a realist narrative. It would be tough to do that in a way that wouldn't be very didactic. If you abstract it out into these imaginary cultures, it's much easier to see. I think this is, comes from something Ursula Le Guin said as well, but the idea of realist literature, like it's realist in a sense of like describing the world as it is. But I think she uses the phrase a realism beyond realism or something mm-hmm. because, because there's... A realism of a larger reality. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Be- because like the reality as exists right now is like we're in a culture, we're in a context. And so if we're just describing everything from that perspective, like it's real in the sense that it's of our current now culture, but it's limited by all of that as well. 
Realism is also a scam, is the thing I would add. <laughs> it's my hot take on realism, is that it's like, it's a it's a very new genre in the history of genres. And it's funny because it sort of became like the dominant genre of literature for, you know, half a century. But it's actually very weird. Nobody really wrote realism in the past. The idea of separating out fantasy elements or science fictional elements even is very strange and new. Many cultures, you know, where there's a ghost, there's interactions with the, with the gods, there's mystery, there's romance, you know, you, to have it at its own thing, like, realism is, like, how people engage with each other in this, like, cold bourgeois way without magic is, like, actually very, very weird and very modern and probably a passing fad, I think. I think it's very hard to describe our current reality. And I, I think, honestly, like, sci-fi does it way better than any realism. Because how do you do it? How do you talk about this realistically? That sense of realism really dovetails with the, the, yeah, the sort of capitalist realism thing or like the political contemporary realism of saying that realism is equal to gritty pessimism mm -hmm. and that like the, the more dirt you can see in the corners of the scenario, the more realistic it is. Rather than sort of embracing the, the reality that the realm of potentiality is a real space, like the thousands of potential futures are real. And what that, what that means is really, really significant to the choices that we make in our day-to-day -day lives, especially in politics, that we're not on a trajectory where we're like reading a history book and we just happen to be on page 24 or whatever. Like we are at the beginning of a process of an unfolding of thousands and thousands of potential realities. And the steps that we take in our day-to-day -day life, the conversations we have and ideas that we push can profoundly influence the direction of those histories. And like that to me is like the mind-blowingly awesome thing about science fiction is that it can speak to some of these realities and it's like this sampling platter of the world of potentiality and I, I feel like the the world of potentiality is like so profoundly connected to our conception of our place in the universe and just that, that science fiction is generally the only place that that sort of potentiality is voiced. Yeah it gives you a lot of agency because the way that you interact in your daily life and how you participate, in, and I, I really love what you said about potential futures, I think that's really true. But, you know, it's not just that things are going to keep going on in the direction they've always gone on. You have the chance to create, a, you, to participate in a new future, and you can imagine what the new futures would look like. And there are lots of possibilities. And the choices you make do matter, and they do make a difference. And even small choices make a difference. In And now we go to one of the thousands of possible futures, a utopia for someone, but not for everyone. In this utopian future, Earth is being run by a single corporation that everybody has to work for. It has great benefits, allocates tasks by ability, and allocates resources by need, run by a council of benevolent CEOs doing the best that they can given the historical circumstances they find themselves in. The one catch, the only catch, is that like somebody who works in customer service, you always have to be kind of repping the company and talking about how much you love it. And that's sort of a requirement is that everyone be on board with the company mission once it's set. Now we go there. You mind if I just talk about some of the things I love about my job? Yeah, sure. Not only do I not mind, it's allowed in our corporate culture. So please list them off. Number one, I love the 15 hour work week. That is incredible. I love completely covered medical, dental, physio, massage. I love the special gifts 
the company gives to people based on their circumstances, like being having a family with kids or having a disability. I always know that like not only am I taken care of, but everyone I know is taken care of because we're all employed by the company and we're all employees in good standing. Of course, the board of directors, they're going to want well-functioning people. And to have well-functioning people, you provide for all their needs, sometimes even before you know that you need them. That's what I always tell myself whenever I'm assigned something that I didn't know I needed. Central computer works in mysterious ways. Exactly. Yeah, whenever my family members and friends get taken to the involuntary work retreats, I always try to tell myself, like, what did they do? Did they deserve it? Why did they deserve it? Who deserved it and why? Oh, that's great. I want to make that into a poster, put it up on my vision board. Who deserved it and why? Yeah. I just got super, super grateful all of a sudden when I remembered that I get four paid months of vacation every year. Two paid years, maternity and paternity leave for all new parents? That's why our children are so emotionally healthy. Yeah, it's a great corporate culture here. But I guess that's why the corporation's named Heaven on Earth, right? The thing I love is I can just say, ugh, I'm in heaven, no matter where I am on the planet. And it's always true because the corporation covers the entire planet and there is nowhere that isn't under the jurisdiction of the corporation. Yeah, and I guess we're sort of placated, right? Because we get everything we ever want and need at all times and we're totally supported. Yeah, so we don't question, there's no reason for us to question the way things are because we're so comfortable all the time. Completely comfortable in every way and just as far as I can tell, I just totally pledge allegiance to the structure, the order, the company, the my role in it. All my wildest dreams come true all the time. And I couldn't be happier to be part of the Heaven on Earth team. Yeah. You know, couldn't have said it better myself. In fact, just imagine me saying what you just said in my voice. And that's my sentiments, exactly. I love that trend in civil society. When we're talking about our deepest held views. How a lot of people will say, what that guy said, I echo exactly. Word for word in every way. Put that on my record. Yeah, it saves a lot of time. This really is a perfect society we've built. And even if it wasn't... We wouldn't be able to say it. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good thing that it is actually perfect, right? Yes. Again, it does clearly state that if we have a negative opinion, we have to keep it to ourselves. That's part of the policy. And we're allowed to talk about that. But if we hold any of those negative opinions... It's working against the corporation. That's what we wouldn't say. Well, and it's an infantile disorder to critique what is settled, right? Yeah, that would be a breach of corporation policy and you'd be sent to an involuntary work camp. It would be sent to a training retreat for team members. Yeah, you're right. Sorry, sorry. I just, I call it camp sometimes because I think it's like a camp. It's so much fun the few times I've oh, been Oh yeah, there. that's definitely like the camp. connotation of work camp is... It's like camping. Like it's a fun thing Camping with your do. coworkers. I'm what just, other connotation of work camp would there be? Yeah, no, I'm just, the weird thing is I'm totally used to hearing involuntary workers retreat but it just caught me that time i don't know what it is love camping that's all it is and with that much vacation i mean everyone's making time to camp absolutely so do you want to sing the corporate anthem or well now that you've asked it would be ungregarious of me to say no team members always have to have a smile on be good like yeah gregariousness is something we value in the corporation and if you've asked another company member to sing a song it's always good to say yes heaven on on earth Heaven on earth. Yeah, 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 yeah. Heaven on earth. Yeah, 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 yeah. Didn't quite turn into a hoedown this time, but it is nice to sing. It's weird. Usually all of our fellow team members will jump in with that sort of thing, but I guess everyone's too busy. And 
that was the future where heaven on earth, a giant corporation with great benefits, holds dominion over the entire planet. And uh, it's a utopia for, for those people. I'm back to the show. I'm really interested in the way that Star Trek is suddenly really back in the conversation, especially among socialists. It's like it's a thing now in socialist Twitter. You can like talk about how much you love Star Trek. It's very cool because we're all admitting that it actually like for a lot of us was really inspirational because it's one of the very few popular science fiction, like you know, pop cultural science fiction, where a socialist utopia is depicted as a cool, fun thing that is not only possible, but a thing that would happen in the Earth's future. Yeah, that's like I grew up watching Star Trek Next Generation, and like I can't imagine that it didn't have a huge impact on how I see the world right now. Because they're such sweeties, and it's the idea that like human beings can evolve and become better people. And can evolve past like the the shitty people that we've been, and, and actually develop technologies that are equally shared and really help people, and go around the galaxy trying to mostly just help people. It's a it's a lovely idea, and it is a thing that we could actually do. We're not bound in to keep repeating the same shitty patterns over and over and over again. That's not true unless we decide it's true. You had a really great article in Current Affairs called The Dismal Frontier that was sort of comparing the post-scarcity utopia of a scientific, diplomatic, humanitarian Star Trek, or Sweetie Trek, as we might call it. <laughs> Sweetie to... Trek! <laughs> but compared to the new Star Trek show, I haven't, honestly, I haven't watched it. I've just heard bad things. It's called Discovery, and you leverage the critique that there's you know, something missing, the sweetiness is gone in this this new, much sadder Star Trek. I mean, what's your problem with that show? Don't you support the arts? <laughs> well, I have to say, actually, this new season, the second season, much better. It's it's real sweetie hours on track again. It's still, it still has some problems. It's still, like, way over dramatic. Everything is, like, constantly exploding, and, like, they always have to save somebody. But the crew is actually, like, sweet, and they are actually trying to solve problems rather than, you know, be involved in a racist war of conquest. So that's good. But the first season is really, really weird in a lot of ways. They, they sort of rewrote the Klingons so that they, you know, the Klingons are this essential enemy. Um, and they, they change sometimes their enemies, sometimes their allies, but they have this complex culture and, and it has changed between original series and, and next gen, but they, still, they have a complex culture. They have a perspective of their own. And they were reimagined for Discovery as like pretty obviously an allegory for Muslims. They're like concerned about imperialism. They want to remain Klingon as their rallying cry. They're religious fanatics. They're also cannibals. There's a lot of like really ugly imagery, like colonialist imagery just like forced on them, which again is super weird in the context of how they've always been portrayed. And effectively, it's the, their point of view, which is, you know, that they have something to fear from the Federation. It's like, oh, no, they're just being crazy. Like Federation isn't out here to conquer them. And just in the in, given how colonialist the narrative is, it's it's really really strange. It's like really invalidating, and it doesn't really make any sense. You end up wondering, like, are the Klingons right? Like, do they have something to fear here? Because this is not how, usually how this story goes. So it's a really it's really odd. There's a genocide plot. It's a mess. It's just a mess of a season. It was very dramatic, and everything exploded. Yeah, they and they also like <laughs> changed the look and made them look like much less human. They're yeah. shown speaking in their own language a lot more and they feel more different, more other than in yeah. any of the uh post TNG series for sure. Anyway. They have, yeah, they have hair now. In the second season they give them hair. 
Yes. Yeah. So they yeah, look they much look, more look, human, and, I, and they're I was, having some like actual sweetie times. I was wondering how they grew that hair so fast because it didn't seem like that much time had passed. But they all have long hair. But yeah. it's okay. I'm into in it. In like five <laughs> minutes. Five minutes later, they have long hair. That hair grows fast. I don't know. Maybe it's a canon thing now. Their hair grows real fast. Yeah. Yeah. I think what they were trying to do with the first season was like show like these Star Trek values being challenged, but then ultimately winning the day at the end of the season. But the narrative Mm -hmm. arc was such a mess and the values didn't actually do much until the end. As you mentioned, yeah, they uh, decide not to commit genocide, which is good. Congratulations. A plus. Always a good, and I learned from your article, they all get medals for not doing genocide. They did. They all got medals for not doing genocide. It was lovely. I need to cop me one of those non-genocide medals. I, I too have never done a genocide. It's a participation trophy, or a non-participation in genocide trophy. Uh, speaking of like current Star Trek shows, I'm curious if you have watched the Orville. I have not, and I should, I just... You know, Seth MacFarlane, I'm like a little yep. over him, but I, he- I heard it's really good. Yeah, it's like you hear it's from the Family Guy guy and you're like, okay, I don't know. I'm going to skip this show probably. But like, especially when it was contrasted with the first season of Discovery and it came out, I was like, this is this is my shit. I like this way better. They just cop like the TNG era ethos entirely and then put it in mm. a moderner show. I think the main difference is the characters aren't... They feel a bit more like people from our time transplanted into mm-hmm. a society like that. Like they'll mock each other or have petty infighting still, but like ultimately come together and do good. And it's good. And it's not Family Guy. So, yeah, All right, I found, I'll give it a shot. I watched through the first season and caught a couple episodes since. Um, and it's got some interesting, like philosophical stuff happening in it. Sometimes there's maybe an argument that there's like a little bit of a conservative like conservative philosophical Mm. ideas that are integrated in some of the conversations around like what comes to mind is they there's like a episode where they're debating about giving a baby a sex change because it comes from a species that is usually all one sex but very rarely will be born the opposite sex is a rare thing it's like their cultural thing is to give them a sex change operation and then but like they won't let it happen on the ship because it's against their values so there's like cultural conflict sort of stuff like that where I felt like there's mm-hmm. sort of a conservative thing to this but it's handled pretty well I don't know I I thought it was like legitimately fascinating stuff and sometimes mm-hmm. funny yeah, and yeah those kinds of family guy. those kinds of cultural conflict stuff is what like mm-hmm. what I one of the things I loved about TNG and that is front and center in Orville and that they've been doing a bit of in season two of Discovery yeah, it's funny. TNG, you know, and, and I still love it a lot, but it's dated in a lot of ways because they have their own episode about a single gender culture, sort of like an agender culture. And then it ends up being sort of a very clumsy allegory for both being gay and trans. And it doesn't wholly work because it's like an agender person who decides to be a woman and falls in love with Riker. And if they'd wanted to really go balls to the wall, they would have had it, you know, of course, be a, a gay relationship. But right. it, it's interesting how things can be sort of progressive for their time. And that what really was progressive for its time and then 20 years later is not quite as great as it was but it was an attempt and, and it was a brave attempt so there you go 
Right, right. Yeah, it's like how the original Star Trek show has the first on-screen interracial kiss, Captain Kirk and Uhuru. Yeah, and it only went through because Kirk kept uh, ruining the other shots. Have you heard this story? No. They were like nervous. The network was nervous. They didn't know if they wanted to run it. So, So they filmed the scene with the kiss and without, and Kirk made sure to make a stupid face. I mean, I don't know how they told the difference between his regular face, but he made a stupid face in the scenes where he wasn't kissing her. So they had to go with a kiss one, to be sure. Oh, that's hilarious. I didn't know that. Oh, maybe we could call this episode Sweetie Trek. Sweetie Trek. I love it. I love that. And I'm going to start using that. A lot of the current affairs staff are Trekkies. Space. The sweetest frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Benevolent. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no sweetheart has gone before. Captain's Log, I hope that my crew is all doing well. I just... I care about them. They're like a family to me out here on this mission. And I try to make sure they know I'm there for them, but sometimes it feels like it's a rote sort of, oh, you know I'm here for you type thing. I don't want to be prying either. I just really care about them and I worry about them. I mean, not like super worried, but just it nags at me a bit like I could be doing more. Sorry, another long captain's log. Enter. Captain, do you have a minute? I know, I'm just a helmsman, but... Just a helmsman. It's an important piece of a... It's not a hierarchy that way. We all serve specialized roles. Sure, uh, yeah, I do follow your orders and you don't follow mine, but like it wouldn't work if we were all following It's like a movie director orders. on a set. Yeah, it's a specialization. It's not... Yeah, but if I told you to eat shit, I hope that you would say no. It's one thing to man the helms, but it's another thing to debase yourself at the footstep of hierarchy. That's not the type of ship we run here. Yeah, we just left Genlo. Lob 4, and I'm just conflicted. You know how the dominant society on the planet has so much more technology and wealth, and one side's dominating and colonizing the other side, and we have the power to stop it, and we're not. We're flying away from them while they suffer and die. We follow the prime directive. We don't interfere with non-spacefaring species. They're violating the prime directive. If we want to uphold the prime directive and say that more technologically developed societies shouldn't interfere and impose themselves on less technologically developed societies, don't we then have a obligation to break the prime directive to uphold the prime directive and, and just to do what's right? That like Those people need us. And like when I saw some of the view screen footage and those kids on the surface, one of them looked like my little sister and I was just imagining her down there. And it's not right, Captain. Hmm. Would you like a cup of tea? I hate to see you like this. Yeah, I think that might help. That's Blenerino cooling tea. It calms the nerves. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, Helmsman, I think that you're right. And I think that our job out here in space is to explore, see other civilizations, and then in that context, be heroes. It's not our job to sit on our hands while we watch children that remind us of our family be killed. You mean it, Captain? I do mean it. Thank you for this tea, by the way. It is calming. If you could return to the helm, I will be seeking clearance to intervene. Yes, sir. I'm going to have to make myself a little bit of that cooling tea. Computer, Blenerino cooling tea. Computer, bring up Admiral Madmerlam. Yes, Captain. Go ahead. 
Hey, so listen. No, I'm always here to listen. That's my job. If you or any of the other captains have concerns or questions, my view screen's always open. So. so we just left Genlop 4, right? And there's dominant society there interfering with an even less advanced technological society and doing the worst type of intervention possible, imprisoning them indefinitely without a trial, forcibly integrating them into the dominant culture. That's awful. Emotionally tough for me and the crew. Oh, of course. Yeah. Do you need extra counseling support? Yes. Great. Was that all? No. So since the dominant society there is not following the prime directive themselves, in order to uphold the prime directive, which I believe in and I abide, we actually need to protect the non-dominant culture and that we should turn the ship around, go back there like heroes and save them. Oh, Captain, do you want some tea? Do you have some tea? Oh, you! I see you already have some there. I've got okay. some cooling tea. It's so sweet of you to think of the people who are hurting on that planet. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, I care about them too. But I also care about our values. And these are our values, and they're not their values. So you can't impose our values on them. So as sweet as I'm finding this permission to go back to Genlob 4 is denied. Admiral, the the scale of destruction and pain on this planet, you can't be neutral towards it. There is no neutrality. There's nothing high-minded about not intervening. We we have the power to stop it, and I'm requesting permission to return to Genlop 4 with my crew to save these people who are suffering. First, Captain, I want to say that I hear you, and I hear how important this is to you, but we aren't the universe's saviors. We don't go around policing other planets for what we think is ethical behavior, and we don't go around acting like some superior culture there to teach the primitives how to do it right. That's just not our role. I am going to deny permission once again, a second time. Admiral, the people on that planet have families, communities, feelings, and they're being tortured to death. I request permission to return to Genlop for to save them. You know, Captain, I I could tell you all the reasons behind the regulation, but you already know all that. You've had that information since you were in the academy. Instead of reminding you about all that, I'm going to tell you a story, and then I'll answer your request for permission there. The story stars me back when I was a captain. I came across a planet. The predominant culture was a death cult. They sacrificed babies frequently and adults slightly less frequently we snuck down to the planet embedded ourselves amongst the people and we started an insurgent life cult embedding it with sweetie fleet values stuff that we thought would really turn the planet around and the human sacrifice in the end the life cult actually ended up mutating into a super duper death cult that said the only way to actually end all death was to end all life on the planet and they used some of the scientific principles we seeded in their life cult manifesto to devise a new form of life a new bacteria that was super deadly and they eliminated all life on their own planet so That was what happened to me when I tried to be the hero. And that's what I'm telling you from the heart and from my own personal experience and from Sweetie Fleet regulations that permission is denied. Sir, I would like to request permission to return to Genlop Permission is denied, Captain. If you take this course of action, 
you will face a court-martial, very likely lose your captain's chair, lose your rank, and what's more, your entire crew will be no more. There's a good chance those people will be spread to different corners of the galaxy, friendships that are on the ship. Everything that you have and hold dear depends on you obeying this order, not to return to Genlop 4. And that's final, and you're dismissed. Very well. Computer, connect me to the helmsman. Yes, Captain. Set course for Genlop 4. We're going to do what's right. I knew you'd do it, Captain. I knew it. One of the sort of paradoxical things about the Star Trek universe, and I've seen people talk about it more as like Star Trek socialism is increasingly a discourse point, that Starfleet is a military organization. And so I've seen people say stuff like Star Trek is Star Wars from the perspective of the Empire, and it's the internal propaganda of this colonialist intergalactic empire that it's made up to make them look so good, or even people saying that Star Trek is itself fascist. Have you encountered these types of arguments? You got strong feelings on it? Interesting. I have not. I have to say, one, that sounds like Star Wars fans who are bitter. But two, (laughs) I actually think Star Trek can be really interesting when it explores this question of, you know, because it is a military, are they a colonialist power? Discovery season one could have been handled a lot better in that respect. That could have been an interesting interrogation. My favorite Trek is Deep Space Nine, which is really the darkest darkest in a way that makes sense and is good. Because it shows some of these weirder conflicts. It's the one that introduces uh, Section 31, the secret agency that Starfleet pretends doesn't exist, but absolutely exists, and they totally know about it. And they do a lot of covert, dirty shit behind the scenes. So there is an extent to which they are an empire, and it, that is a, like a creepy thing to interrogate. And as any like American science fiction is always talking about America, and is to some degree always talking about American empire if it's doing its job right. There is room to interrogate this and make it interesting, but I I kind of reject the idea that it's internal propaganda because, like, yeah, you'd have to sort of rewrite the stories for that to make sense. So sorry, Star Wars fans. Sorry, Peter Thiel likes your stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As much as I bulk at that idea because I'm like, no, Star Trek, good. <laughs> I do think it's a useful lens of analysis yeah. to look at it for sure because, I mean, like ultimately the Star Trek universe doesn't actually exist and it's a text or like a video type, whatever, like we're reading mm-hmm. into it what we'd like to so yeah. the saying it is a militaristic fascism thing is like that you're asserting your point of view which is fine and i think it's an interesting one but i don't think mm-hmm. it's the only valid one or anything this also reminds me of i had a really interesting and jarring interaction with a person who identified as a marxist leninist they're sort of like stalinist territory but they're sort of being a contrarian but they were being serious but not being serious but using the same types of arguments that people would use to defend stalin to defend the empire in star wars and say that the empire was good in star wars 
They even said that the destruction of Alderaan was justified. And I started like, and I'm, they're trying to troll me, right? But like, I just started flipping out. I was like, I was like, <laughs> you, you think like philosophically, ethically, you are ready to kill 20 billion people for the greater good? Like that is literally your position. And that is the same position that has continuity with your support of Joseph Stalin. And you think that you're not being a fucking parody of yourself right now? Like what is, <laughs> holy fucking 20 billion people. Like that's a lot. Like that's not, that's so many scores greater than any human tragedy. Like that is more, that is like all human history all at once being fl- like Darth Vader is literally the embodiment of evil mythologically. And the, the fact that you can use these Stalinist arguments to defend him, I was like, I couldn't, I don't really have. A- I, I love how worked up you are about this. <laughs> well, 20 but, fucking billion, dude. Well, but hold up. Was a part of a five-year plan? <laughs> like what did it do for agriculture? Serious question. Yeah, great in the point. galaxy. You gotta crush the counter revolutionary. <laughs> they don't see the big plan, the big picture. I kinda like that argument because it's like it's like honest. I mean he's trolling, but he's also being as trolls usually are, they're being like totally honest about what they believe while pretending to be joking. Like, yeah, no, no, no he would be down with twenty billion people. That's cool and gross. What a gross person. I like that. <laughs> We're talking about Star Wars. I mean, my hot take on Star Wars is that the original three movies are the only ones that should exist and the others should be consigned to the pit of oblivion and should just never happen. My hot take on The Last Jedi is that it's a, it's a story about the resistance and how much it sucks. And it is like the hashtag resistance like itself, like being unable to like articulate what it stands for and what's it about and what resistance would even look like and that's why they suck so much and are terrible at everything you're talking <laughs> that's about why like the movie that, itself is like kind of a meta failure the the hashtag resistance donald trump kind of culture democratic party stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah because the, all they're doing is running away poorly <laughs> and just they're like oh nobody in the galaxy supports us and then there's this like casino planet full of like rich people who've been like rich forever and like everything's cool with them and they have slaves I don't know how, like, to what extent the movie was, like, self-aware, but it actually kind of worked for me in that respect. Oh, that's interesting. It's like, yeah, yeah, the resistance does suck at everything. They really don't have any idea of, like, why there are problems and, like, how fascism is resurgent again and why that is. I love Casino Planet scene. If that was Casino the whole... Casino Planet scene is good. If it was the whole movie, I would be <laughs> standing that movie like crazy. Anytime you can free some horses, like space horses, that fuck with rich people's casino tables. I would like to see a little more exploration of these slave children, though, because that's pretty sad. And it's just yeah. sort of like, eh, they're slave children, and we'll try to free them. And there's hope because one of them has force powers. Yeah, uh, yeah we, but the hashtag resistance isn't dealing at all with them. We, we, slave children under Obama, too. I mean, sorry, hot take. Yeah, yeah, all around the world. <laughs> We've got a pretty hot take on our show about Star Wars and the prequels specifically. We've done the research to find what is the best possible justification of the Star Wars prequels and threaded together some arguments made by other people. The heart of it, you know, is George Lucas said that the prequels were about how democracies turned to totalitarianism. Although there's some serious problems with like actually watching the movies, except for the Padre scene, which I which <laughs> is legendary. I especially the idea that really captured my mind was the idea that Jar Jar Binks is the embodiment of the Jungian tadpole symbol. <laughs> Amphibians in Jungian symbolism is the transition of adolescence, so going from child to adult. And he's symbolic of the innocence of Anakin as Anakin turns to the dark side in his transition like an amphibian. And actually, Jar Jar himself in Episode 3 casts the deciding vote on Order 66, which causes the death of the Jedi as an elected representative because of his innocence, like Anakin's innocence leads him to kill the Sand People, including the women and children too, and then the young. Younglings, 
I'm getting a little bit worked up, but I like that. That's really interesting. Dude, mind blown. I'm gonna have to go watch them all again. That's crazy. That makes a lot of sense, though. Yeah, we, yeah. we have an episode uh, standing for Jar Jar Binks. It's it's old. It's back in the... Like 2015, fi- maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah but uh, <laughs> we put a lot of work into it. I'm gonna listen to that immediately. Uh, that's that's crazy shit, and I, I think you may be right. But why would Padme <laughs> die of a broken heart? Where does that fit into the the Jungian mythos? Oh yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think I think that's just <laughs> it's just bad writing. I think he wanted there to be bad writing in the prequels. Like it was one of his goals. It's like <laughs> I need bad acting and bad writing so it can be like an old style science fiction pulp thing. Right, like that, right, that right. was like. That's my understanding of his motivation there. But then it's also <laughs> ironic, like even if it fails to be conveyed in the storytelling, <laughs> to have that sort of intelligent critique through line about how liberalism and the naive le- liberalism of Jar Jar Binks can lead to the rise of fascism, then to sell it off to Disney and have this like pseudo resistance. Like it's it's funny that it's in the realm of corporate dictatorship and the suppression of creativity and so on that like leads to this completely idiotic view of the universe rather than a complex one yeah and it's funny actually getting back to even your original question like how do we stop like the the fascism taking over the science fiction the problem that we have right now is we have absolute corporate control of media industries and i mean there's conglomeration among publishing houses so it's it's really hard to get published it's always been tough to get published, but it's really, really hard to get published as a as a novelist now without having like a very specific like marketing hook and like being able to fit into like a niche and and all that and to like get your stuff moved on to the you know sort of the next level where you can actually make money where it becomes like a series and all that. That's really tough and that's all corporate owned and their incentives are really, really strange. And you know, it's about cross marketing, it's about cross promotion, and it's about selling toys. Especially Disney, it's all about selling toys. And it's uh, really hard to get some actual good stories out of that. Yeah, because if you've got an idea about like a crazy planet with an interesting social structure that you want to explore, you have to frame it in terms of like a Twilight-esque romance between the forest Mm -hmm. alien and the sea alien, you know, and then they're like, I can see little money signs in my eyes, sweeten the pot, you know, is it a a triangle somehow? I want to see a triangle. You got to have your elevator pitch. What's it like? What demographics can you market it to? How much social media can you do around it yourself? It's so weird and so gross. I, I write some science fiction. I write short stories so far mostly. And it's, man, it is fucking tough. A lot of sweet people who, a lot of sweeties really want to sell their stories and get their stories out there. But it's so, so hard to break in. And it's it's funny because it's really, really hard for people of color. But then there's also this like fetishization of stories by people of color. So they're like let in a certain number and then like drum up a lot of attention around it. But it, it, the market kind of treats it like a trend. Like publishers treat it like it's just like a marketing trend. And if it stops being trendy and if it stops selling, then like that'll be the end of it. And there's still this very naive belief that I run into with people I know in sci-fi fantasy circles where they really think that like if they just sell enough books, then like capitalism will understand that like stuff by people of color is profitable. And Eh, that's kind of not how it works, actually, because they'll just go with whatever happens to be trendy. And that may not always be a thing that's like noble or good or... Watching the movies, 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 movies. And now it's time for a message from the Wrong Boys to George Lucas himself. Dear George Lucas, I am 
disappointed in you. We're both disappointed in you. Your vision for the Star Wars prequels as being about the descent of liberalism into totalitarianism, using Jar Jar Binks as a metaphorical device across the three episodes with three full, beautiful appearances, truly exploring that character arc, as was your original plan, was the right choice. And it was the wrong choice to cave to fan pressure when they could not see the scope of your wisdom and storytelling instincts, which I think were totally on point. I really want to compliment you for that. And I get it. I get what it's like to have everyone in the world saying that character was awful, remove that character, Star Wars is ruined for me. We've all been there, but they didn't have the full picture. You did have the full picture and it was your responsibility to keep Jar Jar's role in episodes two and three to be as big or bigger than you had. (laughs) 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 Or bigger than you had originally planned it because the star was too bright. The, The star, the sun of Jar Jar Binks was too bright to look at in that first movie alone. If you had completed the vision, You know, there's no saying how great it could have been. So we're disappointed in you, George. No easy way to say that, but we just thought being direct was the right way to go. We're disappointed in you, George, and now back to our show. We now go back to the sky city of Cluj, where the cult of universal human emancipation is doing its narrative work. I'll just pop that tape out. So yeah, that's the tape. Hopefully that's been helpful for everyone here in this universe and that we're going to get you on a much better course. Do you have any questions? Oh yeah, good question. Yeah, is there a second part of the tape for you to listen to? Because while that seemed good, it feels incomplete. Great question. The thing is, is that a lot of universes just need one tape. You might be a two-tape universe, but our time is pretty precious when we're doing this work. Let's let's turn that machine back on and see what your future looks like now. So we can actually pull live footage and data from the trajectory that this universe is on. This is the type of tech that we have over in our main universe, where the whole cult of universal human emancipation thing started. It's like really crazy tech, if you think about it. Just to unambiguously see the future within a universe. When we use this in our own universe, it says still perfect like it's just eternal so yo they have the future is looking better rolling starvations don't happen for another couple decades after when they would happen you can totally evade the rolling starvations in your lifetime with this and it does look like the surviving sky city does seem to in the long term carve out a hollow half-life of human existence against an unforgiving backdrop of terror so that's a big step up from yeah, the from being consumed obliteration, by the, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. But um, I think they are going to need that second tape. Yeah, um, yeah. What's uh, that? But to be honest, most people do need both halves of the tape. That's why they're kind of one tape. It's not to be withholding. It's just kind of this makes it fun for us. And genuinely, some people do just need the one tape. And then we can jump to another universe because there are infinite universes that are in a predicament like yours. So the least amount of time we can spend, the more universes we can fix faster. Yeah, and the whole work of fixing universes to us is a mixture between time travel and narrative work. And so that's in putting narratives with you while we 
touch down, right, using the time travel technology we've developed. Yeah, exactly. Narratives, just like they're talking about in the episode, we, we've taken on the logic of what they're saying, and it's part of what we're doing here. It's deeply ingrained in our thought. So by sort of showing you the halfway point, it helps build the trajectory of the episode that makes, uh, that gives you the narrative incentive to really listen, to really impact the directionality of, of your universe for the better. So that's honestly, full disclosure, that's why we do that. So we'll, uh, yeah, we'll pop in the second tape. Here we go. You still good to stand for the rest of this? Oh yeah, no, I'm a standing machine. I actually get up early in the morning at 6.30 every day and stand for like two and a half hours. That's how I start my day. No, not everyone in the future is as good at standing as Sean. He puts the work in. Some people are swimmers, some people are runners. I'm a stander. I could go pro if I wanted to, but I've got other passions. I'm sorry if I sound defensive about that. It's just that a lot of people pressure me to go pro. And I'm just saying this cult stuff is more important to me. Yeah. Anyways, let's hit play. I'm, you guys aren't my dad. The utopian future hasn't eliminated touchiness, and that's okay. We'll press play. So you're doing a lot of comedy work for current affairs and like taking philosophical leftist ideas, current event stuff, and translating it into humorous, satirical stuff. And it's one of the things that makes current affairs like the best socialist magazine in my view is that it has that levity to it from the stuff that you're doing and science fiction and comedy are both reliant on this imaginative thrust and the building of like false scenarios like the way that we talked about science fiction being able to show these alternatives comedy can also kind of show those alternatives yeah it can I, place you in a different context and then like show something through that context and you get the two points of reference rather than being stuck in the world as it is how do you conceive of your comedy in the context of working towards universal human emancipation and the abolition of all that is terrible <laughs> That makes it a lot more noble than it really is. Because a lot of the time, a lot of the times when I'm I'm doing a comedy thing, it's because I'm super angry, super angry because something terrible is happening, and like the only way that I feel like I can really process it is to heighten it to some extreme or invert it or to abstract it out to another scenario, as you guys are saying. And I, so I think it's a sort of a twofold thing. Like for the person who's creating it, it's a relief, and it's and you're releasing this tension into something that. You're finding a way that you can laugh at the darkness and the horror of things. But it's also, from the receiving end, from the people who read it, it's a way of like perceiving reality very directly in, in ways that, you know, are not really talked about. So my favorite leftist comedy right now is actually coming from The Onion. The Onion is doing these amazing headlines about Israel. They're one of like the only sources of things where somebody will be, they'll be like honest about like Israeli atrocities. And, because it's a really, as we've learned lately, a fucking edgy subject and people will get very, very tense and, and upset. And so one of the ways that you can process it in is, is in something that is like obviously exaggerated, but really like points at the reality of these very, very bad things that are really happening that are genuinely a problem. You can use comedy for evil too. You know, you can use it to reinforce stereotypes and to, I mean, conservatives are really bad at comedy and I think it's super cute how much they try. And there's always this like, oh, conservatives are, are getting good at memes shit. And it's like the cutest thing alive. But <laughs> I think the problem that they have is that a lot of their humor relies on being stupid, not understanding what things are really about. ContraPoints had a really great video about this the other day that I've like been thinking about constantly, where she was talking about like transphobic humor is often like predicated on not understanding what being trans is. And so it's funny if you are somebody who doesn't understand what trans is, being trans is, but if you are trans or a person who understands what's going on, then it was like, this isn't funny. This is just stupid. This shows that you don't know what you're talking about. 
So I think conservative humor in that way can't be liberatory because it's based on these like smug, closed in misunderstandings of reality. But leftist humor can be really liberatory because the idea is we are perceiving the way things actually are and we're finding ways to talk more directly about the way things actually are and talk about them directly by talking about them indirectly, by putting them through a lens and a mirror and inverting them and doing kind of funny things with them. But you guys do an awesome job with it on your show. I love your show. Oh, thanks Thank so much. you. Also, I totally agree with you. The Onion is just killing it right now. Since they were unionized, mm-hmm. they've just like, oh, yeah, they've become yeah. like a powerhouse of one-line commentary that cuts to the heart of an issue. It's like the most recent one I saw that just, I was at work and went on Facebook because I can be a bad employee sometimes. And <laughs> the headline, like I was laughing at my desk really hard at the Michael Jackson estate questions why accusers have only been coming forward steadily since the early 1990s. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's exactly the type of laugh that that real like gut like Ooh. cringe, cr- oh. righteous but still right cringy like oh yeah like nail on the head onion yeah and I, I saw I saw recently like Babylon B or there's like a conservative attempts at the onion that are like Aww. like you're saying yeah sort of precious but also reliant on totally like this joke only makes sense if you literally don't know what anti-Semitism means. Like, if if, if you have a grasp no. of what anti-Semitism entails, it's just clearly a weird non-sequitur. And also, yeah, there's just nothing funny about the reification of hierarchy. I mean, like, we live in these yeah. hierarchical stuff all day. And then to, to be like, onion headline, leftist darling uh, doesn't realize that bosses are actually good. It's like, okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And it's not relatable for the majority of people, which is why like conservative comedy like always fails in these like websites and these counter daily shows that they've tried over the years because everybody's had really shitty bosses and they're like, this doesn't seem real. I can't relate to this. Doesn't make any sense. One of my favorite things right now is how, how obsessed they are. They're so obsessed with AOC, but they're really obsessed with her being stupid, which is just like a clearly not a stupid person. Like you can point to like one time she misspoke here or there, but she's not a stupid person. But like that's all they've got is to keep talking about how dumb she is and that she used to be a bartender and they just kind of keep hitting this note. And I think it's like really, it's really cute because they're really obsessed with her. It's like they're on the playground and they're like, you're dumb, <laughs> date me, talk about me. Yeah, well, yeah, I think that's the problem with trying to criticize and respond to things that you've consciously chosen to like never understand the substance of is that like mm-hmm. they were in a position where they're like, oh, okay, well fuck we can't call her ugly like that's what we were gonna do yeah shit i guess we'll make some impact font memes reusing blonde (laughs) jokes from the 80s and 90s maybe that will stem the tide of insurgent eco-socialist entryism in the united states (laughs) best of luck boys yeah noted star trek fan aoc by the way it's a big voyager fan nice so this all uh, all stems from, you know, stems from a lot of places, but it's definitely one place it comes from. We stand a legend. We do. <laughs> Doesn't mean I always love everything she says. But. Ima- imagine an AOC who was an Ayn Rand fan instead oh of a Star Trek fan. We could have lost her. I'm actually, oh, man. I'm reading The Fountainhead right now because Nathan made me, and it's actually like, I'm not going to say it's good because it's not. It's like the opposite of good, but I'm like really enjoying the experience. Because of how, like, shitty and bad it is. I love reading her books because, like, the ham-fisted philosophy stuff, like, punched in and, like, these strange 
dualistic characters like they're either fat and round and terrible or they're like sharply <laughs> lined angled and very smart and intelligent and I was just thinking about her ever since you said everyone's utopia is someone else's dystopia because in uh Atlas shrugged her little utopian anarcho-capitalist society in the mountains. Mm-hmm. They're just like, yeah, let's let the whole world fall apart and die while we we build our new no-government society. <laughs> There's really no such thing as a capitalist utopian novel, which I think is really interesting. Like, Atlas Shrugged is the closest one that I know of. There's another one, I can't remember the name of the author, called Beggars in Spain, which is like a very neoliberal one. But it, it's also, it's predicated on like, there is like this elite group of brilliant people who have all the rights and all the power, and then like everybody else, you know, is either ruled by them or can go to hell. But there's no like world utopia that is a capitalist utopia because it's not imaginable because that is not a thing that works with capitalism. And I, I kind of I think that's interesting that even like people who are pro-capitalist, like extremely pro-capitalist, like Ayn Rand, they implicitly understand this is not a philosophy that works for the vast majority of people. It can only work for a tiny elite. They can only be the people who are finding this situation utopian. You can run into like ANCAPs back before the fascist turn when ANCAPs still existed that would have (laughs) sort of like a utopian view of capitalism. But like overall, the capitalist ideology is the no alternative ideology to say that if you attempt for utopia, well, Mm -hmm. that ends in killing fields. We've seen it before. And it's like clockwork. It's the structure of the universe Mm -hmm. that if you dream of a better world well, then you end up guillotining your best friend, and that's inevitable. So it sort of makes sense that you wouldn't run into those like utopian capitalist narratives, because by mm-hmm. even aspiring to describe these these outcomes, their own ideology says that they should all end in this mutual bloodshed, because inherently to dream of a better world is dangerous, and you should just commit to the structures as they exist. Yeah, this is as good as it gets. What a dire thing to say. I've had ANCAPs describe a world something like this to me, that in the future things would get so cheap because, you know, the market's so efficient and then like eventually, you know, you could maybe do 40 hours of work in a whole year and because the society's so prosperous and so much automation, that work would be so valuable, you'd be paid enough to live for a whole year or for two years because everything will keep getting cheaper forever and wages will keep going up forever and it's like have you been in the world in the real world and they're like well that's corporatism it's not real capital (laughs) okay well (laughs) it's that's funny because that's so close to like a star trek socialist utopia except not quite they're almost there they're almost to this point but they still have to say like well no you'd still have to work you'd have to have to have to put in 40 hours in order to get paid but why would you even consider salary at that point if the, if the cost of goods is so cheap? Why isn't everything just free? Yeah, like what's the point? Well, I yeah. just give it to people. What exactly. difference does it make? People would probably still work. It would be like what Shevik is talking about, about his anarchist moon. People still work. They take pride in work and there are things to do. So why not just go there? Why, why hold on to capitalism? What is it doing for you? So when we first started this show in 2014, that exact sort of point was something we returned to a lot, which is like, everybody wants a perfect world. These ANCAPs, you know, like, yeah, some of their premises are wrong and the logic doesn't follow. We can critique and take some of the good ideas from it. But mm-hmm. ultimately, they want to reduce the length of the workday just like we do. And just like that was sort of like one of our early naive themes that happened in the pre... Mm-hmm. Pre-2015, 2016. Yeah, 2015, yeah. 2016, when you got all these like... <laughs> Countercultural authoritarians became a thing. Um, it totally mm-hmm. fucked up our whole everyone is nice and you can just be nice all the time premise. <laughs> and we had to like really rethink some of our philosophical backing. But those utopian <laughs> ANCAPs, they sort of lost 
the discussion on the right. Like, I don't really see them anymore. Maybe it's just that I no longer bother to engage and they mm-hmm. still exist. There was an article about them recently, and I can't, I think they were in Mexico that they had a, um, they'd set up like this little like colony in Mexico, and one of them got murdered, which is the subject of this, of this article was about how one of these like ANCAP loyalists got murdered, sold weed, and then ran afoul of the drug cartels in Mexico. Because obviously that's going to happen if you try to sell drugs in Mexico. So uh, it's a a pretty funny story, if you don't mind laughing at somebody who was murdered, which I don't because I'm bad. But (laughs) as far as I know, that's what the ANCAPs are doing. They're being dumbasses. (laughs) Yeah, it... (laughs) What have the ANCAPs been up to? (laughs) They have to be dumb. I mean, they're... Getting killed in Mexico. (laughs) Yeah, there's... I mean, I think there's a reason that you don't run into too many of them because they kind of don't get capitalism in a really critical way. Like, if they're finding it liberatory, they're not understanding what's really happening. And the true capitalists know it's not liberatory. They know it's not utopian. They know it. all it is is about accumulating power for yourself and money for yourself. We now go to two conservative intellectuals in the year 2032 as they get totally publicly owned by President Ocasio-Cortez, elected on a platform of public ownership, entering her second term. Oh, this publicly owned health care that I don't have to pay for makes me so angry. It just stomp on my hat. God damn it, I'm so angry about getting Medicare for all, a Green New Deal. I could take my hat off and... The way that she reduced the work week and made every workday only six hours long. Now people get to spend more time with their families and doing the things they love. I liked working all the time. It's six weeks vacation. What are you going to do with that? What really pisses me off is the... So mad. Further reduction in the length of the work week if you have a child. God damn it. I value families, but not that way. Worst part is we got those parents working at the same pay. Uh, same pay, doing less work. I'm going to spit on my hat now for that one. That's a... That's for those parents who get paid. And that's for all the non-violent drug offenders she let out of prison and massively reduced crime in the country. I hate electoral reform and campaign finance reform. I hate direct democracy and participatory budgeting. Makes me want to friggin' spit. Oh, I hate the way that she revolutionized property relations by universalizing the concept of a lending library to every aspect of our lives, giving us access to abundance beyond our wildest dreams, which has given us a new sense of respect for the objects that we manufacture and utilize in our society. I hate this bad president. She's too young and she's not smart. That's it, I'm hopping back on this hat and doing some more stomping. I'll join you. Four more years of this woman, totally owned by her. Never been so owned in my whole life. Uh, I'm angry mad. Anger's the only emotion I feel comfortable expressing. The old two conservative guys getting owned in the year 2032 by President Ocasio-Cortez sketch. And that's a wrap, folks, on that sketch. Moving on to other aspects prepared. Don't worry, we've prepared something to follow this. And now we go to one of the tens of thousands of possible futures. Not Sean's utopia, not my utopia, but someone's utopia. 
Wow, this whole store is completely made of poo. I'm used to that. Hi, sir. Hi there. Welcome to the diarrhea dispenser. Are you making a deposit or a withdrawal of diarrhea? Withdrawal, please. My poo-poo car's out of diarrhea. Regular or supreme diarrhea for that? Only the best for my poo-poo car. Give me the supreme diarrhea. That's a really nice poo-poo car. I would put supreme in that, too. That What is that uh, exterior there? It looks green. Is that hardened, compressed children's sick diarrhea? You got a good eye, sir. You got great taste in motor vehicles which are made of poo for us in our universe oh by the way before i go could i get a pack of poo cigarettes gold king-sized and a bottle of diet diarrhea sure yeah and swing those up you know i was actually just reading something apparently money has got quite a bit of poo on it oh wow really it's not enough to scrape off and use for anything though no right? at the bank machines they have an automatic scraper to oh take oh, those the, bastards the, the they're always stuff. taking whatever they can that's what i'm saying poo banks they're profitable in a financial crisis, and they're profitable when the economy's booming. I mean, they make money all the time. Why, why should that be privately owned? Anyways. Did you work in banking? or? No, no, yeah. I've got a passion for it, I guess. My passion is I'm a writer. I actually write speculative fiction. I write about worlds that don't exist. Oh, for, cool. for example, right now, I've been um, working on something. It's kind of out there. It's this universe where pretty much nothing is made of poo. Like, poo just isn't a big part of their society other than the natural function of the body they kind of hide it away and don't use it for anything yeah it's really i want some of what you're smoking that's crazy sounds horrible yeah it's a dystopia for sure you got a rebellious and reckless mind on you goal in writing it is i really want people when they're reading it in the context of the world we live in which of course diarrhea is ubiquitous and used for everything despite there being very little diarrhea in the book the absence of the diarrhea will be ever looming and just you'll i I really want to reinforce the values of our society by showing what a world without them would look like i guess oh yeah yeah so you you can sort of speak through metaphor about living in a poo-poo world where diarrhea is ubiquitous because of the context that we live in it's so normal the day-to-day inherently the readers of the book are going to be looking at it through the lens of our society exactly yeah that's what makes this so powerful because, I mean, there's nobody on our planet who hasn't grown up hearing diarrhea lullabies, diarrhea arts and crafts. Like, it's so seeped into everything that we do. It is really a challenge to do what I do, and that's why I love it. That's why it's my passion. It's a stretch. That's that's really cool, man. Good for you. Yeah, follow your dreams, man. Just one last question sure. before I go. Do you agree that it's normal for a child when he's growing up to call his mom and dad poo-poo man and poo-poo woman? That is normal to me because everybody that I know does that. That's normal to me too. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for asking. I'm glad to clear that up. Makes me feel closer to you. Enjoy your diet diarrhea. If you're wondering why I got diet, it's because I'm dating again. Sorry, TMI. Yeah, good for you. you. Sorry, I've just, I've been having a rough time dating, so. Oh, chin up. There's someone out there for you. Yeah, it just doesn't always feel like that. There's plenty of poo in the diarrhea. You know what they say about dating? There's plenty of poo in the diarrhea. Yeah, I know it's true. It's just hard to remember sometimes. <laughs> A diarrhea world. Not our utopias, but someone's. Back to normal world and the show. Do you have any last thoughts on the power of science fiction? I'm already convinced, but 
why is science fiction so good anyways? Why bother writing utopian futures or dystopian futures? Why not just do dystopian fantasy novels about evil wizards cynically backstabbing each other? <laughs> I mean, you, if you want those, they are out there. There's an Ursula Guinness. It's called From Elfland to Poughkeepsie, and she's talking about what makes a fantasy novel a fantasy novel and what makes it not just like realism with different nouns, you know, in different, like a different setting. And she brought up that like the dialogue really has to be different because you're in a different kind of world. You're not, yeah, yeah. I mean, everything is ultimately based on this reality and everything is related to the reality that we live in. We are describing the reality that we live in. But the mode of fantasy, which specifically talking about fantasy in this essay, the mode is it's a heroic mode. It's a noble mode. It doesn't mean that every character is noble or that like there are noble things going on, but you are describing things in epic logic and according to epic sense, not like, you know, like internet epic, you know, like real epics. And when you're doing that, you're talking about ultimately the heroic potential of people. You're talking about the ways in which people can be good. And yeah, of course, contrast against backdrops of maybe people being not very good, but you are that's why I think grimdark fantasy is sort of a dead end. It's kind of missing that like point that you are supposed to be talking about like the deepest and most essential nature of people. And if your point, whether it's fantasy or sci-fi, if your point about people is that their deepest and essential nature is that they're real basic and that they don't want to do nice things for people and that nothing is ever going to change. And so it's like Game of Thrones, you're stuck in the cyclical, like people backstabbing people, blah, 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 blah. It, one, it's boring. Plots wander, it doesn't really work. And two, you're not really getting at the heart of what these genres really are and what they do. And what they do is explore potentialities. They explore what things can be, but they also explore what the potentiality of the human soul, like what we are capable of. And we're capable of lots of things. We're capable of really monstrous things and also really great things. So I think that these genres are kind of unique in that you can really get into these by abstracting things out you can really get into these really deep essential things by working within an epic mode. You can like explore the epic parts of, of the human persona as opposed to like a bourgeois realist novel where like maybe a cat gets hit by a car and that's as, that's as deep as it goes. So, you know, it's funny because in some ways you don't have to plug sci-fi and fantasy because everybody loves them. It's been a recent thing in the last 10, 20 years that people are like openly really talking about them as literature and really admitting like, like I'm so happy to see so many socials coming out of the woodwork and being like admitting that they love Star Trek because like when I was a teenager especially as a girl it wasn't like okay to say that you were into Star Trek and then you were like a dreadful nerd total loser and you know it's become mainstream in part because of massive corporate control but in part because we're also more comfortable admitting that this is really good stuff and this is really meaningful stuff and it means a lot to us and it's really shaped how we think and feel about the world. One quick, quick last question. You know those people who say everybody needs to read theory and they're just really insistent on that and no get one mad should when read people theory. say everyone doesn't need to read theory? No. I'm thinking of becoming an everybody needs to read utopian fiction, like in the same vein, like just insist on it. Everyone mm -hmm. has to do it. If you say they don't, you're wrong. <laughs> what, what do you think about that? Do, does everybody have to? Um. So the thing about <laughs> utopian fiction is that a lot of it's really boring. It's a tough genre. I've been reading a lot of feminist utopian fiction for a different essay that'll hopefully at some point I'll write. And a lot of the stuff from like the turn of the 20th century, late 19th, turn of the 20th century, super boring. There are some great, great novels that were written by women in the 70s. The Dispossessed, Woman on the Edge of Time. Joanna Rust also wrote this book, The Female Man, which is like fantastic. 
so yes, reading Utopias is good. Watching Star Trek is good. But in general, I would say read sci-fi by women would be actually my hotter take on this because I think a lot of the really, really good sci-fi and fantasy being written now is being written by women. And a lot of the really liberatory and also really readable and fun stuff is being done by women. And there's a lot of stuff by women that's like also very not good because it's, you know, mass market produced and it's made for corporate taste and it's not actually very interesting. But there is a lot of really, really good stuff out there. And um, a lot of sci-fi people, no offense, I talk to men who like love sci-fi and at best they've heard of Ursula and maybe they read one of her novels, but that's she's the only one. And that's not enough. And if you really want to read cool, liberatory sci-fi and fantasy, you've got to read women. And there's lots of women of color who are writing really good stuff, too. So make sure it is a diverse range. If, if you're feeling called out right now, folks, it's because you you're one of the good ones. So get on it. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to check out the female man. It, it jumped oh. out the title also when you mentioned it in the planning doc. Because I Ursula is the only female science fiction author I can think of right now that I've read yeah. multiple books of. The Female Man is Wild. It's 70s experimental fiction, so it's like it's like a weird book, but it's it's really great. It's a it's a really fantastic. And there's also a dystopian element along with the utopian elements too. Famously John Russ wrote another book called or it's an, an long essay called How to Suppress Women's Writing. And the great irony is that she has been forgotten and a lot of people don't know who she is anymore. Too bad cuz she's uh, one of the great science fiction writers. I yeah. hadn't heard of her so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know cuz it worked the suppression. Because women's writing gets suppressed. And that, it's also, uh, that's also a really good read, How to Suppress Women's Writing. It's really infuriating, especially like in the context of her being mostly forgotten. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another Light of Gold Science Fiction Recommendations Time with your host, <laughs> Light of Gold. Hi, guys. We're only going to talk about women's fiction because that's all I care about. So, have to read Ursula Le Guin. Must read. Left Hand of Darkness and The Dispossessed are probably the two big ones. I would also read Earthsea. Actually, I'd read everything that she ever wrote because it's all amazing. Octavia Butler is an important person who you should read. She's actually not my favorite, but she is on the list of just the list of the canon. You have to read her. Margaret Atwood, she wrote a book called Oryx and Crake. It is the first of a trilogy. I don't really like the other two, but I love Oryx and Crake. It's a really good, really gripping dystopia. N.K. Jemisin's Broken Earth trilogy. Every single book in the trilogy won a Hugo. It just came out a couple of years ago. That's how good it is. Every single book won the Hugo, and deservedly. There's nothing else that comes close. It is really original. It's really depressing in spots. It's definitely very dystopian, but it's really, really good stuff. There is a forgotten, mostly forgotten novel by Suzette Hayden Elgin called Native Tongue. It is about linguistics, and it is also dark and dystopian and feminist, but it is a really great, unappreciated novel. Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time, fantastic must-read. If you want fantasy, Kate Elliott is a totally underrated, wonderful writer. If you like Game of Thrones but wish it didn't suck, I highly recommend her Crown of Stars series. Came out around the same time. Slightly similar themes, but uh, she's way better. Carmen Maria Machado wrote this fantastic book, Her Body and Other Parties. Fantastic, weird short stories. Absolutely must-read. I cannot recommend them highly enough. Shirley Jackson, if you haven't read Shirley Jackson, sort of more in the horror category, but We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Very weird, very strange, very powerful book. And, oh, Tanith Lee. Un wow, very underappreciated. Wrote tons and tons of books. Though Actually, the one I would recommend, strangely, is not, is like the only book that wasn't sci-fi fantasy. It was one she wrote about the French Revolution. 
and I'm blanking on the name. It's something to do with the gods, but it's a fantastic book. I highly recommend. I recommend her short stories too, her sci-fi and fantasy short stories. But if you can find her book about the French Revolution, it is really good, really weird, really bloody. But again, no actual fantasy elements. But it is a really good like what it must have felt like to be inside the French Revolution. And uh, I think I'm going to cap it there, though I'm going to think of uh, more in a minute that I forgot. Awesome. <laughs> so there you have Sorry it, books <laughs> that you have to read. You have to all read. Otherwise, something wrong with you. You've got to read all of them all in a row. <laughs> They're all really good. You, N.K. Jemisin, her trilogy, like, not to be missed. It is really, it's really important and really special. Not utopian, but it's, it's really powerful. This has been an awesome conversation. Thanks for coming on the show and talking about this stuff with us. I uh, would love to have you back sometime. Yeah. So this has been Light of Gold. If you want to see more of Light of Gold's work, you can go to currentaffairs.org or listen to her on the Current Affairs podcast, which is one of the other great podcasts of the internet, if you're a podcast fan. <laughs> and also there's the Current Affairs Book of Amusements, which is available to be mm -hmm. purchased right now. You're supporting uh, independent leftist content that is for sweeties, is also funny, also very critical of the things that deserve critique. I can't speak highly enough about this stuff. So thanks again for being on the show, Lida. Thanks, this was so much fun, you guys. And now it's time for a vocally described meme image. A podcast with meme images? I'm in. Not quite, Billy. Because podcasts are an auditory medium and not a visual medium, we actually can't have any images. But what I can do is describe an image. That sounds just as good. Some people think it's better. So now this is a meme format you've probably seen before. One side is brown and one side's kind of yellow. There's a person on the brown side. They're laying on the ground. They have stink lines coming off them and flies. They're wearing tattered clothing, looking generally bad and pathetic. And then on the yellow side, or like golden bright side of the meme, there's another figure in a kind of brown cloak. They're looking knowledgeable and wise, almost spiritual. And they're holding out a hand to the fallen stink line person on the other side of the meme. So that's the format. I love that format. You got me on the hook, now reel me in. You know, kid, you're a great meme audience, I gotta say. On this particular variation of the meme, the fallen individual is labeled nonfiction. It says, you know, boring, dry, feigns objectivity, telling rather than showing, describing ideas directly, unnatural systematic formatting antithetical to how our minds absorb and contextualize information. My memes sometimes get a bit wordy. So that's all nonfiction, and that's the fallen half of the meme. And then on the other side of the meme, you have the enlightened individual. Reaching a hand out to the fallen one and saying, you could yeah, you join could be the like smarter, me. better side that has less stink lines. So lay it on us. What's on that side? This side says fiction. And with that bright yellow background, it's surrounded with words like engaging, alive, inhabiting radically different contexts showing rather than telling, values and ideas presented in action in a world, format that matches how we experience and contextualize information about the world, i.e. narrative. Again, yeah, I get a, a bit wordy on my memes, but you get the general idea. That's the meme. I'm saying that fiction is better than nonfiction. And of course, with, as with all memes, it's, you know, it's half-hearted, tongue-in-cheek. Nonfiction has benefits too, but I think fiction is sometimes under 
appreciated and people don't get the many reasons why it is better than nonfiction. So that's my meme. That's the best audio version of a meme image I've ever heard in my life. And I'm a huge fan of meme images. So that was right up my alley. Thank you. Well, thank you again for being such a great audience. And thank you to all the listeners out there for listening to my vocally described meme image. And now back to the show. That was a great interview. Yeah, really fun episode. Yeah, and then super embarrassing. I'm like, oh, I haven't read any science fiction by female authors except Ursula Le Guin. You know, completely embarrassing myself as a schlub who hasn't read any female-authored science fiction. I completely forgot that I've actually read 54 books of female-authored science fiction in the Animorphs book series when I was a kid. I was literally like, besides Star Trek, the other major founding fictional universe of my life is Animorphs. I can remember so little of it, but I read, I think, literally every Animorphs book as well when I was young. I recently saw some people repping Animorphs in like left book groups, and I was like, oh yeah, I did really like that. So I went back and started reading them, and these books are so good. They're so, like, they're kids' books, and they're repetitive and written at a low reading level for sure. The prose isn't the most beautiful thing in the world, but just really like mature and intelligent themes and like just to give an example and to get people to understand how how great these books are the ninth book in the series it's told from the perspective of cassie who is kind of like an environmentalist and she loves animals and that's a cool thing i completely forgot too is that each book is told from the perspective of a different character so you get to like go in their head and see how they see each other and stuff like that. Like, that is as deep of storytelling that you can do for kids in science fiction. Yeah, a lot of kids' books are just one perspective. And, like, you guess each book is one perspective, but that they alternate through them all in the series is really cool. And, like, her dad runs a wildlife rehabilitation center, which is one way they're able to get so many cool morphs to turn. They can turn into animals that they have touched. I didn't give the premise of the story. What, what uh, is a morph? It's, it's a, yeah, turning into animals. They have alien technology. There's an alien war going on, and these parasitic slugs are invading people's brains and taking over their bodies and using them as controllers to further their own ends and turn humanity into a slave race kind of a heavy premise for a children's book series and then i mean you could make a book that's just like oh i'm a kid i'm gonna turn into an animal now oh this week i turn into a bluebird and it's just like or whatever (laughs) but like it's got this really sort of like well thought out science fiction universe and like they transform into animals in the context of an intergalactic war in retrospect i'm just like wow k.a applegate really just made all the other youth authors that I dealt with as a child look like total chumps. Like Like in the first book, you find out Jake, one of the main characters, his brother is a controller. So there's like one in his family that he's like always has to be on the lookout for. In the second book, you learn that Rachel, one of her best friend's parents, voluntarily gave themselves up to be controllers. So first she's dealing with that mindfuck, like, oh, some people are doing this willingly. And then she ends up learning that they did that in order to save their daughter, to keep her from becoming a controller for a little bit more time. She's right from the get-go. It's like not skimping on like heavy emotional themes. But this book nine shit really hit me. Cassie's dad finds a skunk that has been hurt and 
she sees that the skunk had a bunch of like little skunk pups. So while they're nursing the skunk back to health, all of its little baby skunks are going to die unless she does something about it. So she wants to acquire the skunk morph and go and like play mother to those skunks because she loves animals, loves nature, wants to help them out. Uh, so she starts doing that. And after a little while, she finds out that Tobias, one of the other people in the group who's stuck in his hawk morph forever, don't ask, it's a thing, actually ate one of the skunks that she was trying to take care of before he knew that it was her deal because he's a predator, he's a hawk, he eats other animals. And so she's dealing with this mindfuck of the viciousness of nature and of predator and prey relationships and like how horrifying that is and it's like personal to her now because like those are her skunk babies like when she's morphing their mother she has a biological connection to them and she feels motherly love for them but her friend ate one of them it's just this like uh what's like (laughs) complex moral shit and then like the mission they go on in that episode they end up morphing termites to try and break into this compound of some kind and when they morph termites they completely lose all individual consciousness basically like they often can get lost in the morphs when they first go into them because the animal mind kind of takes over but the termite one's super powerful because it's like this hive mind colony thing and they're like on this razor's edge of being subsumed into termite life forever when she manages to have like a moment of clarity rips the termite queen's head off saves all her friends but then at the same time feels the death of the entire colony like she feels like what it's like for them to be completely rudderless and not have a queen and like they're all gonna be scattered and die right there so at the same time as saving her friends she feels like she's just committed a genocide and the whole book is just dealing with these themes of like what's the point of doing good in a world that has this much awfulness and viciousness in it which is like just a really hard <laughs> moral question to put in a kid's book and i could i could actually go on i have more animal stuff i could tell that you I could go like... on yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's great highly recommend them to anyone there these books you can read them in 2 hours they're like little novels they're easy just burn through them yeah it's super i feel like all kids must read this now now that it's i think about law. it new law <laughs> But yeah, you gotta. You take a commute to work. You can pop out an Animorphs book in a day. You know, one, yeah, half, half on the on way, way there, there, half, half on, the on the way, way back. back. Definitely all day thinking about what's gonna happen to Toby. What's gonna happen to all of them? Also, viewing science fiction written by a woman, mostly. She had ghostwriters too, but I think most of them were women as well. But yeah, so had to throw that in. Animorphs is great, and thank you all for listening. Next time on Seriously Wrong. Boy, boy, can you come here? Yes, Papa. 
I'm coming. Come here, boy. Oh, you were you reading my story? I was. Did you sit down? You want to have me sit down before you praise the story? Yeah, that's the thing, boys. It's not going to be a lot of praise this time. Oh. I know it. Shh, shh. This whole science fiction story didn't have any ironic twists where the good thing actually turned out to be secretly bad or inverting your expectations. It was just a very straightforward description of a much better society than we live in. I thought it was a bit ironic when Marissa's secret admirer turned out to be the person she'd had a crush on all along. Come on, boy. You know that that quirky and cute irony about the character and relationship developments in the story isn't the type of irony that Papa's talking about. Papa's talking about the type of blood-curdling irony that sardonically smirks at the cynical inevitability of social progress stalling and the painful reality that to set out to change the world is to become complicit in destroying it. That's the type of irony that science fiction demands. But Papa, I don't want to imagine those kinds of worlds. I want to imagine better worlds so that we can move towards better worlds together as a common humanity. (sighs) I want to spark people's imaginations to bigger and better things and to better and better societies. Well, you can do that through sardonic wit, okay? Now, I'm keeping this, and I hope you don't have any other copies, and you have to go to your room for a honestly open-ended period of time. I'm so upset with you. Okay, Pop-Up, I'll go to my room. Can I have a pad and paper to try and write another story like, like that one? Absolutely not. No, um, boy. No pad. Okay, I'll just think up the stories in my head then. I'll see you later, Pop-Up. Huh. I can keep the pad and paper from him. I can keep him away from typewriters and computers and ways of recording his thoughts, but I don't have any way of... If only there was some way to stop his thoughts at the source. That would make this better again. That would make this all okay. And that man's name was Chester P. Xenon, founder of the Xenon Group and sponsor of today's episode with a fabulous new product, that stops the thoughts at the source. Why don't you tell us about it, Chester? Thank you very much. The Xenon Group family would like to welcome all team members to try on the new Thinking Cap series, which stops the thoughts directly at the source. I'd also like to announce Xenon Group and Texas Shipping and Trade are announcing a formal partnership taking steps towards a merger This will be the second largest merger in the history of human society, leaving only seven corporations on Earth. It's an exciting time for the Xenon Group, and I think you should wear your thinking cap for it. Mr. Xenon, just one last question. I don't know if you've commented publicly on this yet, but the interdimensional cult of universal human emancipation has declared intellectual war on you and your organization and have vowed to turn you from your ideas to their ideas. Do you think that's possible? Do you fear the cult of universal human emancipation will destroy the Xenon group? Or do you think that you will ultimately triumph in the end? It's a good question, and thank you for asking it. My papa told me something when I was young, which is when a interdimensional person from the future who has a way of perfectly predicting the future of your universe within the multiverse, and they seem to be doing it selflessly for the greater good because their universe has already been perfected so totally, you better listen to them. So if they say there's something wrong with us, 
I'm all ears. Persuasive guys. And uh, what, am I going to turn down advice about how to avoid the total destruction of everyone? I'm not a monster. But in any case, the thinking cap, it's a really incredible way to stop the thoughts at the source. Today's sponsor of Seriously Wrong. And that's all coming up next time on Seriously Wrong. We now go back to the flying sky city of Cluj, where the second part of Honestly Just One Tape has finished playing for the people of that universe. Hey, hey, what did you think? Pretty good yeah. interview, right? Yeah, we know. Everyone loves it. What's that? Oh, no, you can't donate to their podcast anymore. They're not from the same multiverse as you, but thanks for mentioning that one more time. They do have a Patreon in their universe, and they appreciate it. But enough about that. Let's turn the future scope viewer thing on. We don't really have a name for it. We just refer to it as whatever we feel like in the moment. So it's that machine that shows the future. And uh, let's see if you're fixed or not. Your future's fixed. I accidentally synced it up to a different universe just now. So let me just turn it back. I bumped it. What's that? Oh, no, he's fine to keep standing. Doesn't bother him at all, trust me. I know you're concerned about him, but he's like a statue. It's no issue. If I look like I'm tired from standing, or it seems like I bumped this unintentionally because I was standing too long, put your fears to rest. That's not what's going on. I'm doing fine. I could stand for another two or three tapes. Wow, yeah, that is uh, that is looking much, much better. Now, that's a future worth heading towards, I would say. Wow, it looks like not only does your Sky City and many of the other Sky Cities survive the terror period of climate chaos, but you collectively work together to geoengineer Earth back to a stable place where you could all return to the, the world that you left. That's really cool. And it looks like you confederated into a global body of directly democratic people's assemblies that are functioning from shared ethical precepts. That's neat. That's really cool. Yeah, one of the greatest pleasures of our job is getting to see how different people's utopias look, because no two utopias are exactly the same. You know, it's just, it's such a delight to see how everybody works it out. And I think this device that can tell the future perfectly really shows that there isn't just one dedicated specific future that you can see that's accurate. There's thousands and thousands of potential futures. And I think what matters is what we do in our lives, the agency that we take, the directionality that we set off on in the creation of our own grand narratives. And I just, I can't, I just, I really feel like this tape showing exactly what's going to happen to all of you for sure underlines that. Absolutely. Yeah, no doubt about that. Mm -hmm.